If you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 19 as we uh, see what it is that the Lord has for us this morning. We're going to begin in verse 8 and uh, finish up in verse 20. It says, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs or the aprons that were brought from his body to the sick And the diseases left them, and evil spirits went out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them. And they fled from the house naked and wounded. And this became known to both all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified. Many who had believed came confessing. Telling their deeds, and many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's pray. Father, God, we just thank you for the truth of your word. God, what your word lays out for us. Lord Jesus, we ask, God, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and Lord, that you might be glorified in this place, God, as we seek to honor You, Lord. We desire to see You in every place, in every piece, in every part of the Scripture, Lord. It is these that speak of You. So, God, may we hear and may we understand. Lord, we lay this at Your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to... The city of Ephesus, Paul's second time he's been there. Remember last time we talked about the fact that some special things were going to be happening as God's people were responding to the Holy Spirit. But there was one thing that still lacked. And as the the Spirit desired to bring about, I believe, revival there in Ephesus, Paul's there for for three years in totality, two years he teaches at the school of Tyrannus, but all around him is such darkness. They had the temple of Diana there in in uh, Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was huge, 60-foot columns, 127 of these columns that held up a marble and gold inlaid ceiling over the temple of Diana. People came from everywhere to see it. In fact, if you almost anywhere in in uh, the Middle East you dig, you will come up with one of those idols. It was the the idolatrous worship of Diana was so um, spread everywhere 
the multi-breasted fertility goddess of the Middle East. People came to that place and they gathered around there at Ephesus. It was a huge city. Big place. Big place. We're we're looking at 500,000 people. It's quite a bit larger than the towns we come from. It doesn't matter which one you come from. It's bigger than them all. Big place. Dark place. And Paul is in this place and he sees the need all around him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I look at our nation and I feel the same way I think Paul felt in Ephesus. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of of problems and issues and things that, that we need to deal with and that maybe we need to work out. But you know, Paul doesn't get off on any of those tangents. He just stays true to the one thing. What's our one main goal? What's our one main purpose? To proclaim Jesus Christ to all. To make disciples of all men. To baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To teach them the things Jesus commanded. And to remember that He is with us even into the end of the age. So Paul stayed focused on that. Scripture tells us that he taught for three months in a synagogue. The longest stint he would have in any synagogue that he taught in was the one there at Ephesus. For three months he taught, it says reasoning. Reasoning, the Greek word is the word for dialoguing. In fact, it is uh, an exact replica or picture of what people call the Socratic method. Questions and answers. Asking questions, receiving answers, creating problems for the people, laying out concepts and ideas and watching and helping them wrestle with those ideas to come to the truth. This is what Paul is doing in the synagogues. But it says, after three months, they began to harden their heart. Some people hardened their heart. You know, you can tell God no over and over and over again, but at some point, your heart gets hard. Scripture describes it like this, and there was no fear of God in them. No fear of God. And they, thinking themselves to be wise, they became as fools. And they trade the incorruptible truth of God for four-footed animals and beings. And they worshiped the creation like the Creator. And God gave them up to an abased mind. And they did those things that are not fitting. But folks, the things that are not fitting weren't the problem. The problem backs up way before that. They hardened their heart to God. There was no fear of the Lord in them, so Paul stopped. He, When they reached that point, every synagogue that reached that point, Paul stopped. Pulled his disciples out and did something else. Scripture tells us they went to the school of Tyrannus. Did you see that? Do you know what Tyrannus means? The tyrant. Students gave that school that name. And Paul called it by that name, the school of the tyrant. I don't know if you guys remember school, but uh, the school I went to, there were a couple tyrants. Maybe two or three. There was even a couple of them that were coaches that were tyrants. So they call it the school of the tyrants. Paul rented out the school in the middle of the day. Now if you still go to Greece today, it's still the same way in Greece today. Your day starts early. 
sunrise. The day begins. You'll work till about 11 o'clock. Then the day pauses. Doesn't end, it pauses. From 11 to 4, there is a siesta. Go home, have lunch, chill out, calm down, take a nap, whatever. And then after 4 o'clock, you'd come together again, and you'd work till long into the night. Then you'd go to sleep, and the day would start all over again the next day. Still the same way. I remember still uh, the, the, the guide that we had as we went through the footsteps of Paul as we worked our way through Greece. He would tell us, it's still the attitude of, of the Greeks today. They're up late, late. They get up early, but they get a period of, in the middle of the day to crash. So this Paul uses for his benefit. The synagogue's been closed to him. People have hardened their heart to God. They're turning away from him. They're becoming an enemy. Persecution begins to rise. But Paul still wants to kick the darkness until it bleeds the light. And it's just starting to crack a little bit. So he rents out the school from 11 to 4. So from sunrise to 11, he worked as a tent maker, a leather worker, making out of leather whatever he needed to do. At 11 o'clock, lunchtime, he went down to the school of Tyrannus and he taught from 11 till 4. At 4 o'clock, he went back to the shop, walked back in and began working again with leather until long into the night and the day started over again. He did that schedule six days a week, 52 weeks a year for two years. He taught in the school of Tyrannus 3,120 hours. He taught giving questions and problems and answers and working their way through the problems that were laid out before him. He did all these things in an effort to beat back the powers of darkness. In fact, he wrote to the Ephesians. You guys remember in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul was writing to them. Listen to what he said in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you might be able to withstand in that evil day, and having done all, stand therefore. He's writing to Ephesus. The darkness all around them. Paul doing battle with the dark, responding to the Holy Spirit. And it's costing him something. Every one of us gets the same gift every morning. The beginning of 23 hours and 58 minutes. And you only get to spend it one time. Nobody upon seeing Jesus Christ face to face will say, I wish I took more time off. Nobody will say, I wish I'd have spent more time at the movies. Nobody will say, I wish I had had more time relaxing. I know that because I see it in history. 
Not necessarily people coming face to face with God in that method, although we see that as well. But, for example, we look at things like the Holocaust. And we see great men who worked tirelessly to save as many people as they could. You guys remember? But at the end of his life, you know what he said? I could have sold my watch and got two more out. Could have gave up this ring. I might have been able to get one more. Because when the cause is so big, we don't come to the end and say, Man, I wish I wouldn't have been involved in that at all. What we say is, I wish I would have given all. Paul's in this place, giving it all. He says, I was happy to spend and be spent. That's a pretty intense schedule. Pretty intense schedule. He was determined and willing at great personal cost to make a relentless assault for Christ in the places of darkness. I would say because he had the fear of God. Acts 19 goes on in verse 10. It says that this continued for two years so that everyone who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both of, or the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Everyone in Asia, that's a modern day Turkey. If you open up the book of Revelation and read chapter 2 and 3, you'll find in there seven letters to seven churches which surround all of Asia that were founded during this time while Paul taught at the school of Tyrannus. The seven letters to the seven churches. They all find their foundation during this time of personal sacrifice as Paul gives himself But the Scripture goes on in verse 11 and says, During this time, great time of sacrifice, unusual miracles happen. Now, if you turn on your TV, somebody on the TV will try to tell you that these are normal miracles. But that's not what the Bible says. Is that what the Bible says? As though normal and miracle or uh, unnormal or go, go with miracle. I don't know. That's kind of beyond my mind. Anyway, but these were especially unusual. They took the handkerchiefs and the aprons from Paul. He he gave them, I don't know, I don't know how it started. How did it start? How did the first guy hanging out with Paul all day, Paul sweating, he's wearing these headbands. That's what the word handkerchief is, the headbands, like you would wear when you're working to keep the sweat out of your eyes. And the apron that you would wear to keep the the dirt from the stuff you're doing with leather from getting all over your, your clothes. And so they'd wear these things. And somehow, somewhere in that time, while Paul's working and going to Tyrannus, maybe somebody came and visited him. For whatever reason, maybe they picked up one of those rags. They They were there working with Paul and they began to sweat and they pick up one of those rags that Paul used and for whatever reason it ends up in their pocket. Later on that day they end up at somebody's house and somebody's sick and they're they're praying over them. I don't know what happens. Why would they reach in their pocket and pull it out? 
Why did they put it on them? They're unusual miracles. As people responded to the Holy Spirit working, they brought those things that was God's honor, God's stamp of approval, a symbol of of God's power as Paul labored that led to healing and freedom. For many were healed of diseases and evil spirits left them. It doesn't say evil spirits were cast out. It just says they left. They left them as uh, they, they came in contact with, with these normal, everyday utensils that Paul used as he labored for the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 6. He says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God won't forget. He won't forget the sweat you sweat in trying to minister to God's people. So much so that God used that off of Paul to heal people. You notice Paul wasn't sitting in front of a waterfall praying over pieces of cloth and charging people 15 bucks a piece for a special handkerchief to bring healing. I also want you to notice that nowhere on the page of Scripture will you see God charging people for healing. No place. It takes man to do that. God doesn't do that. Tests me all the time in that. He's working on a new test. We'll see, we'll see if I jump. I'm a little chicken right now, but the day will come, I think. God's gonna God's gonna do great things. If we are willing to trust wholly and completely in him. Paul is working like the Dickens for revival in Ephesus. Healings are happening, but I don't see revival yet. People that were demon-possessed are being set free, but I don't see revival yet. Paul is working to the bone, but I don't see revival yet. It says in verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits and say, we exercise you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. It was commonly believed and often exercised in those days that Jewish exorcists, the Jewish priests would go around and sell themselves as exorcists to people. They would sell themselves and say, we have power over the unseen world because we know how to pronounce the name of God. But we don't know that anymore. I don't know if they knew it then still, but they said they did. It's been rumored that the high priest, when he died, would whisper it to the next high priest, the name of God. Hebrew is kind of an interesting language. If you study Hebrew, there in ancient Hebrew, there are no vowels. So, speaking could be difficult. You're not sure what vowels to go between the consonants. 
Thus we have in our Bibles today what is called the Tetragrammaton. The impronounceable name of God. It is translated in your Bible as capital L-O-R-D. Some translations cap, uh, uh, put it in there as Jehovah. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's name is not Jehovah. There's no J in Hebrew. There's a Y. So it could be Yehovah, Yahweh, but the reality is we don't know. And these guys, believing that they had some special pass into the, to the power of God because they knew who his, what His name was. They knew how to pronounce His name. They said, well, we'll just say the name of God over to demons and they'll leave. And then they start looking around. They say, man, this dude, Paul, he'd sweat is casting out demons. That somebody took his apron and threw it over somebody and they got healed. And he's preaching about Jesus. Well, we're gonna, we'll just use the name of Jesus. Must be power in the name of Jesus, right? So they're just gonna proclaim the name of Jesus. And so they go to exercise. They, they, they sell their services. Oh, you have a child that's demon possessed? Oh yeah, we can, we've got time today to come by. We'll come by and pronounce the name of God over him and, and that'll set him free. Only one problem. They didn't know God. They just knew a name. Do you know God this morning? Or you just know a name? The sons of Sceva, they came to this, this person, and it says they, the evil spirit, they came to the evil spirit, and they said, we cast you out, we exercise you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. And so the Spirit said to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? In the world of exorcism, that is a bad day. Bad. It's not going to end well. And it didn't. This demon-possessed man leapt on the seven sons of Sceva, beat them, stripped them, and they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What all took place is is irrelevant. What is relevant is they had no power over the powers of darkness. There's a whole lot of people in the world today, in the church today, that believe they have power over the powers of darkness. They believe they have power for healing. They believe they have power in a variety of different ways in their life because they know the name of Jesus. Well, congratulations. The book of James tells us that the demons believe in God and tremble. But they're not His. Right? So these guys, they go and the demon jumps them and beats them. They run around. They run out of there bloody and naked. But I want you to look at verse 17. And this became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. What's the next phrase? And fear fell on them all. And they magnified the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, light of God. 
You guys remember the story? It was a long time ago, I know. It seems like we've been in Acts for like a year and a half, huh? If your preacher would go faster, you'd get through quicker. But when we were in chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira struck dead by God. Do you remember what the next line said? Great fear fell upon the people. Great fear and multitudes were added to the church daily. Look at the rest of what it says. Fear fell on them all. They magnified the name of Jesus. They lift the name of Jesus on high. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Paul worked and labored, but I didn't see revival. Seeds. Seeds being planted. People were healed and demons were cast out, but I didn't see revival. When did revival happen? When the judgment of God fell upon a sinner. And all of a sudden, all those people who were playing church and hearing the teachings of Paul and everything seemed abstract and easy came face to face with Almighty God. There's only one way to do that. On your belly. On Tuesdays, I started meeting with a group of guys for discipleship. And the unfortunate reality of the guys who meet for discipleship, they, they just go through whatever I'm going through that week. So we sat down and started talking about the fear of God and Talked a few times with a couple of them since then. As I wrestle through it and as I work my way through it and as I, you know, you start to realize how prevalent the fear of God is in Scripture. You ever think about that? Well, we know the Bible tells us, right? Psalm 111 says that the fear of God is what? Beginning of wisdom, right? If you want to be wise... What's the first step? Fear of God. Huh. What kind of fear? I don't think it matters. Huh? Yeah, I don't don't think it matters. Fear. Period. I think C.S. Lewis really describes it best. In In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I don't know if you guys, any of you guys ever read it or... I don't know if the movie really does as, as good a job, but the, in the book, C.S. Lewis, it's an allegory of the life of Christ. The Chronicles of Narnia. And, and in that allegory of the life of Christ, one of the things he talks about is this lion. The lion is called Aslan. And people would always, often, say, as they looked at the lion, they're, they're a little freaked out. Would you be freaked out by a lion? If you say no, you are a liar. And you're in church. I'm not too freaked out by the cats in my mudroom. But one that is half as big as my truck and hungry. Aslan is this giant lion. And as he's walking around, people would ask of those who had, had dealings and knew Aslan. They would say to him, is he safe? And they would laugh. No. He's not safe. He's not tame. He's a lion. But he is good. I think that is so important in understanding the fear of God. He's good. 
but He is God. We today have lost the fear of God. That's why we don't repent. That's why we'll stay in our sin. That's why we'll keep the garbage around our house that God tells us to get rid of. That's why the church is a mirror of the world. That's why the divorce rate is the same. That's why the theft rate is the same. Murder rate is the same. What's the difference of being in the church or in the world? There's no difference. Why? We lost the fear of God. And we need it again. What happened here in Ephesus? The seven sons of Sceva, they're not even trying to forward God's agenda in Ephesus. They go out trying to use the name of Jesus and they come face to face with a fear of God. That I don't know Him. I don't know God. And God don't owe me nothing. And the demons knew it. And the cracks in the darkness began to show and light begins to shine through. And those seven guys get whooped. And it, it goes everywhere. People are talking about it. And all of a sudden, for the briefest of moments, they're no longer looking at God like He's a little kitty cat. The one who forgives me. The one who loves me. Oh, those are all true. I'm not in any way trying to belittle those things. The only way you can truly know the love of God is if you know the severity of God. How do you know the love of God otherwise? And you'll focus on the love of God and you'll say, what's the big deal? God will forgive me. I remember a woman coming to me. She was leaving uh, her, her husband and families while we were in California. And I remember her saying, it doesn't matter what I do, God will forgive me. Well, you have lost the fear of God. There is no sacrifice for sinning with a high hand. Do you know the Bible says that? It's no sacrifice for willful sin. Willful sin is sinning and just saying, what's the big deal? In fact, it was one of the big problems when Paul started preaching grace. People get a little freaked out when he started preaching grace. And Paul said, what? Shall I sin that grace would abound? Certainly not. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? In order to live in sin, I have lost fear of God. I lost it. While I was studying all this stuff and we're looking up, you know, doing word studies, and it's pretty crazy. You can, you could really bury yourself. And while I'm studying it, uh, was Friday. Is that right? Friday? I don't remember. Friday, I think. I'm studying it on Friday and I'm chewing on it and I just lean back in my chair, which sometimes I'll do if you spend any time in my office and I kick off my flip-flops and I put my feet on the desk and I lean back, ponder for a minute what I'm reading and then I said, God, I don't think I fear you. Teach me the fear of God. Be careful. Teach me the fear of God. It's a good prayer. You're going to want to pray it. About, I don't even know, maybe seconds after I finished, a few minutes after I finished praying, my wife called me. And our granddaughter had a seizure in California. 
seized for a long time, and they picked her up in an ambulance and gave her medicine to stop the seizure, but she had another seizure while that, and they took her to the hospital, and, and she called me in, in to let me know. Do you really know how powerless you are? You think you have some special power? You think you have some special line with God that God owes you something? We are all, as Jonathan Edwards said, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He hates sin. And I don't think we can understand the love of God if we don't understand the severity of God if we don't have the fear of God. Two men in the Bible called beloved of God. God loved these guys. They had a relationship with God that kind of set them apart from a lot of other people. One guy's name was Daniel. Have you heard of him? Daniel. He wrote the book of Daniel. And the other guy's name was John. One Old Testament, one new. So I, I just hate for you to think that this concept is held only in the Old Testament. be a terrible thing. So Daniel, much beloved of God, is given a vision. God shows him in a vision all these incredible things. And he comes face to face with the Ancient of Days, this vision of God. You remember what happened? He said, I fell down as dead. He didn't feel much beloved of God at that moment. All he saw was a holy God and his sin. And the distance between the two is wide. John, you remember in the New Testament, he's called the one Jesus loved. That's true, right? Sure it is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John the Beloved sees the glorified Christ. You know what he does? And I fell on my face as dead. That's the fear of God. That kind of fear means I can't stay in my sin. I can't. I can't do it. I can't stay in this relationship I shouldn't be in. I can't continue to do these things that I know God's telling me not to do. I can't do it because I fear God. That's the fear of God. You know what happened next? Well, that's the part we all focus on. God lifts them up and He whispers to them. What's He say? Do not be afraid. Why? Because I forgive you. And I love you. But you can't really understand that. If you didn't first have that moment staring into the eyes of the lion. If you weren't like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Who says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up in His train, filled the temple. Blown away by the glory and majesty of Almighty God. He's looking around, but what's He say next? Oh, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I cannot exist in your presence. He thinks he's going to die. 
What's God do? Sends one of the angels to get a coal from the altar. And he goes to Isaiah and he touches his lips. Symbolically, he says to him, Your sin is purged. Your sin is purged. I forgive you. Then he says, My people don't know me. There's no fear of the Lord in my people. They they don't understand what's going on. I need somebody to go. I need somebody to tell them. I need somebody to show them. Once Isaiah saw the glory of God and fell down as dead, and then the love of God and was raised back up. Do you know his next words? Here am I. Send me. I'll go. I'll do it. God's prophets, I'm not always sure they know what they say, but when they're in God's presence, I know what they say is right. Here am I. I'll go. And there's there's so much when we start to think about and talk about the fear of God, but that's what I see happening. Do you see it there in Acts 19? And many who had believed came confessing. They already had faith in Christ. They already professed faith. They already asked Him in their heart to be their Lord and Savior. But there's junk in their lives that they were just skirting over. That they were just covering over with the grace of God. That's no big deal. But when the fear of God came upon them, when fear came upon them because they saw the judgment of God upon the unrighteous, it says they came confessing. Doesn't the Bible tell us to confess? Confess your sins one to another and be set free. How do we find forgiveness? How did Isaiah find forgiveness? What about John? What about Daniel? What about Moses? What about the Hebrew midwives? What about the 50 other examples in Scripture of people who came face to face with God? How did they find forgiveness? They asked. They recognized the power of God. And they asked. They repented. They repented of their stuff. They threw aside their junk. They said, I can't be in this life anymore. I can't stay here. I can't continue to pretend this is okay. Why does the church do it? Why does the church think it's okay? It's okay to live life this way. It's okay to lie. It's okay to act just like the world. Why? Because we cover over our sin with the grace of God and we forget about the severity of God. We forget that God's a lion. We're dancing in front of a lion going, neener, 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 you can't get me. Which of you will do that? I was down in California. We went to San Diego Zoo and I watched them feed a lion. You want to see something Tremendous! You watch a lion eat. You and I, we'd have to take a steak and bite it. A lion just has to lick it and the meat comes off the bone. You felt the tongue of your cat, right? Now multiply that by 500 pounds. There's power and might. And I look at that lion as I stood outside the cage of that lion. I looked at that lion and I said, Oh, had no problem understanding reverence. 
I didn't have any problem understanding the awe that was inspired by the sight. And there was no way you're going to get me to climb over the side of it, stand in front of the lion, and pretend that what I was doing was okay. Well, the lion loves me. He'll forgive me. Ah, you're right. The lion loves you. The lion loves you. But you should fear the lion. Did you see what the lion did to his son? Did you see where Jesus went, what Jesus walked through, what happened? And yet you're going to look at your sin as though, what's the big deal? I'm forgiven. Are you kidding me right now? How do you do that? How do you look at the price that was paid and just sweep it under the rug and say, what's the big deal? These people in Ephesus, they had all kind of stuff. They had books and, and stuff that was part of their old life. When they came face to face with God, they got rid of it all. They, they just tossed it out. Man, I think that's what the fear of God does. Brings revival, change. Right now, across this room, God is doing what He did to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2. I'll flip over there real quick. I was just going to quote it, but I'll mess it up. hate to do that. Abraham's laying in bed next to his wife. And God speaks to him. Sarah never hears God. Abraham does. You ever have God speak to your heart? Maybe not audibly where everybody hears the voice of God, but He's just telling you something. God said to Abraham, It came to pass, after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and went. That is amazing. God said to Abraham, take this thing that is the thing that you've longed for all your life. You waited 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise just to have this child. Now you've had him. And here he is, probably about 30 years old. Age is really irrelevant at the, at the time. But the point being, take this son that you love, go to the mountain and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. Go and do it. And we think, what was that all about? God, why are you doing all this stuff? We know the story. He goes to the mountain. He takes his son up there. He lays him on the altar. The Scripture tells us in verse 11. Look at verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord, a definite article before the phrase, angel of the Lord is a reference to the incarnate Christ. That's Jesus. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he responded, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him. For now I know, what's the phrase? Now I know you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son from me. 
Now I know you fear God. What was happening at Ephesus? They're burning all their junk. They're throwing away the garbage that was separating them from God. They're getting out of their life all the stuff that was stopping what God is trying to do. And so what the Scripture lays out for us, God wants to do this incredible work. He wants to do this incredible move of His Spirit. And what was required, what was required for a revival was for people to come face to face and see God and know Him as God and repent of their sins and separate from themselves those things that right now God is whispering in your ear. Get rid of this. He's saying to you right now, lay your Isaac down. I don't know what it is. But that's what God wants for a revival. He wants you to lay your Isaac down. He wants to know that you fear Him. For fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He wants to know that you're willing to lay aside all those things to let God move and work and power in your life. And when you do, you will understand the love of God like you have never seen it before. You will know it experientially. That means you will have experienced it. And you will be ready to realize that the difference between you and Paul on the page of Scripture is not so great. It's not so great. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, this is the call that God has for us this morning. Lay your Isaac down. We're going to have a time of worship. Jason, you got that? We're going to have a time of worship, and as we enter into uh, this worship, um, I'm just going to do it by myself, and we'll do the last song, guys. Um, as we enter in this is what I'd like to see I'd like to see whatever it is God's laid on your heart that you'd lay it down I'd like to see elders and leaders of the church up front able to pray with people who need prayer and as you lay that Isaac down whatever it is as you lay down whatever that is that God's telling you about that you're making excuses for that you're, that you're trying to pretend is okay in your life I just pray you repent And experience the love of God. The love of God. Man, it... Well, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord, we want to know it experientially. Not just words on a page. In reality. As God brings you to that place, I just invite you to come on up and and partake of the Lord's Supper up front and we'll close out service. Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before You and we just ask that You would move in our midst. Lord, we thank You for just the power of Your Word, God, and the truth of Your Word, Lord. And I pray that my feeble words and examples and whatever things are of me are gone, flushed, totally disappear. But the thing, God, that You're speaking, the thing that You're whispering in the ears of your people. For many who had believed came confessing. And I pray, God, they, they lay it down. Rip it out. Put it on the pile and burn it. And watch what God does.
Watch what God does in a church that repents, in a church that turns, in a church that is filled not only with the love of God, but the fear of God. In a church that is radically different from the world. In a church where the power of God resides. In a church where the forgiveness of God exists and is known. In a church where the love of God is expressed because everyone in that church has experienced the love of God as He has forgiven them their sins. But every one of them, every single one of them took the time to stand before the lion. To look into the eyes of almighty, all-powerful, perfect and holy and just God to fall on their knees before Him and repent say, forgive me. I didn't see. But now I see. Forgive me. And hear what God says. Hear what He says. Listen to Him. They brought the woman at the well, or the woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus, and they sat around there and they laid out God's law, and they said, God's law requires she die. And Jesus stooped down on the ground and he wrote the word is graphe. He wrote words. We don't know what they were. But whatever he wrote, the men all left. The woman didn't jump up and dance about her freedom because she recognized that she was standing in the presence of the righteous judge who wrote that law. She was guilty. And Jesus, He stooped down and He picked her up and He said, Your sins are forgiven you. Now, go and sin no more. That life was radically transformed. That's the experience we seek today. We don't want to be the men in the circle around the woman. We are the woman. And I pray, God, we come to know Your forgiveness, Your love, Your grace as we stare into the eyes of Almighty God. That You would meet us in that place and be glorified in that place as we honor You.